0: turn your Bibles to Matthew 17, talking today about the Transfiguration. We're going to be in the first nine verses of Matthew 17. Just a minute. In the Smithsonian, they have an exhibit called Folkways, which documents and saves recordings of what they call the people's music, of sound, instruction, and spoken word from around the world. One of the recordings in their archives is from Ella Jenkins, who is a renowned performer of children's music. And in 1957, she recorded her first album that featured simple call and response chants, mostly from Africa. In it, you can hear her explaining to the children where it's from, and then she leads them and she sings, and then they respond back to her. Africa is where call and response has its roots, and it's seen as democratic participation, where the second voice is heard as a commentary or a response to the first voice. We see that call and response comes to this country with the slaves. They don't have anything, but they have their voice, and they have their hands To express themselves. When they're forbidden to speak their wants or their frustrations, they give utterance to what is inside in song. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. If you get there before I do, coming for to carry me home. The legacy of call and response in this country and all over the world is enormous. In music of all genres, from blues to soul to rock and roll to classical to hip-hop, we hear the repetition of spoken or sung words and in instrumentation. We see call and response in cheerleading squads, military cadences, preachers asking if they can get an amen. amen. Right? teachers trying to silence their rowdy kids, and, of course, in improv jazz. Call and response has become so ingrained in our consciousness that we don't even realize its huge influence. One voice begins and encourages contribution from those around them, which influences what the leader will do next. I was thinking how following Jesus is kind of a call and response endeavor, isn't it? He leads, encouraging others to follow and to respond to him. The entirety of scripture is God initiating with men and women in various ways, inviting, eliciting a response that shows that we are aligned with him, feeling his rhythm and paying attention to what he is saying. Our life with him is a collaboration of heart and mind that touches the very depths of who we are. That allows us to express life in ways that we never could have without him leading us in that way. In this passage today about the transfiguration, there is a definite call and response happening. God initiates with three of his closest friends to follow him because he wants to show them something important and life-changing for them. And as we see their response, we get a glimpse how faith in Jesus is so much bigger than it gets presented in this life. How faith in Jesus is so much more expanded than we could ever hope or imagine as we watch them, we get a chance for us to think how it is that we are following the leading of the Savior. This is a timely passage for us for the second Sunday of Lent. So, let me read Matthew 17, 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they had looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, God, for the ways that you call us to you. Help us to see you, Lord, in a new light today. Amen. This is a huge event in the earthly life of Jesus, a crucial moment where his true nature is revealed to three of his most constant disciples. As we see, the veil here between heaven and earth is opened, and there stands Jesus as his disciples had never seen him. No longer in his working uniform of a first century Galilean teacher, his whole being is transformed to show who he really is, a king who lives in majestic exaltation in the heavenly realms. This vision comes at a key time in Jesus' ministry. The week before, ironically, religious leaders had come to him and demanded him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus declined the offer, telling them instead that they need to look around them for the signs that are happening. The next day, he asked his disciples who it was that people were saying he was. And they said, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet— And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter responds by saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus praises him and says, the Father has shown you this. After they have this conversation, Jesus begins to share with them more and more about what is going to happen. Now that they understand more fully who he is. He tells them he has to go to Jerusalem where he will suffer greatly and he will die And he will raise again on the third day. He tells them plainly what's going to happen. At this point, Peter pulls him aside and says, stop saying these things. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, this isn't from God now. This is just from your own mind. In response, Jesus gives the disciples words that we live by today. If anyone wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves. They have to deny what they think is the way things are done. They have to deny their human expectations about God and take up their cross and follow me. He then tells them that some who are listening, who are standing there, will not taste death until they see the Son of Man in his kingdom. This then is the next thing. And we see how Jesus' prophecy is true. Six days later, Peter, James, and John are led up a mountain where they see Jesus as he usually is, full of glory. You see, he reveals himself at a pivotal time because they are headed to serious, serious business. They're going to Jerusalem. The ministry is coming to a close. They've turned a corner and they've come to the main reason why Jesus has come. In the format of call and response, we see four ways here that Jesus leads and the disciples echo back, sometimes in harmony and sometimes not. But what is evident to us is the way that Jesus initiates with them and is consistent with them like he is with us. So as we study, think of how Jesus has invited you to participate with him and what your response has been. The first invitation is for them to go up the mountain. Jesus calls those who follow him to come away with him. Luke records that they went there to pray. Isn't the mountain always a symbol of God's presence and revelation? In the Bible, we see that from mountains come good tidings and rivers of joy, highest understandings of God's truth. People go to the mountains still today for refuge and for strength and for beauty To worship and to receive in filling. Mountains are symbolic places of receiving the best kind of refreshment God can give. We are replenished by God's life before we have to go back down to the valley. Before we have to go back down to regular life where there are hardships and voicemails and shadows. Jesus takes three friends up the mountain by themselves. This is just one sentence in the middle of a big story, but I want us to just think about it for a second. Without going, the disciples would miss something amazing that stays with them forever. If they don't go, they miss a key moment in their life with the Lord. Do you think that they asked, where are we going? Why are you only taking the three of us? What are we going to do? How long are we going to be gone? Isn't that what we would do? That's exactly what I would do. Or did they just go? Because he said, come on, let's go. And the trip that we just took to Washington, D.C., Carrie Savota was our guide. She gave us as parents just enough information each day to get us where we needed to go, but not the whole picture. And if you asked her, hey, what are we going to do next? Or what's going to happen when we get there? She might say to you, yeah, you don't really need to know that. (laughs) She actually said that once to me. (laughs) While we could have allowed that to be an annoyance, (laughs) it was actually great just to let someone else handle the details, right? Just to have it covered One day we went to the Capitol. I've been there a few times before, and I was like, oh, yeah, they've got a great cafeteria, and there's this, and there's that, and yeah, that's going to be great. But it turned into this amazing tour where we got to meet a representative from Ohio, and we got to sit in the House and sit in the Senate and pray for the very leaders who are there every day. Wow, I didn't see that coming. When the Lord invites us to spend time away with him, do we balk? Do we think of the things that we would rather do or think of things that are more pressing? Do we try to take control and say, oh, Lord, I'm just going to take you in the car with me. Or I'm just going to go and do this. You see, there's a lesson here when the Lord wants to take us someplace that we leave and we go And we trust where he wants to take us. And some days, the destination may surprise us. The second call and response moment is the transfiguration itself. The word transfiguration is the Greek word metamorpho, which translates into changed form. It's the same word from Romans 12, where Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our very form is changed by the presence of Christ in us. Here Jesus is changed before their eyes. His whole countenance becomes dazzling, magnificent in light. He shone like the sun. Now think about this. These these three have followed him the longest, besides Andrew. They have seen him as teacher and leader and provider. They have heard him be a prophetic voice for justice against the oppressive power of authority. They've walked with him a while. They've traveled with him. When you travel with people, you really get to know them. Right? They slept outside with him. They have seen him in so many different situations. Yet they've never, ever seen him like this. They have known him as sent from God and understood that he was divine in a way. But none of those things that they've seen before truly have captured the one who is resplendent in glory, whose countenance shines like the sun. Not only that, but he dwells with the holy ones who have gone before. Here we see Moses and Elijah, who themselves have significant mountaintop experiences. Together now in one place, we have the law, we have the prophets, and we have the one who has come to give grace. There's so much symbolism happening here with these three that honestly we could talk about it all day. So think about that. Go back and do some research about this. Moses and Elijah came before Jesus to show the people who God was and give them message. But the people couldn't follow based on them alone. So having Moses and Elijah present who both spoke to God on Mount Sinai indicates that this is a new thing. A new thing that God is doing. A new spokesperson for him. A complete picture Absolutely connected all the way through by God's Spirit. So what is the response to this astounding revelation? Well, Peter says, Lord, let me make three dwellings, three tents or tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah. This is a response that's hard to understand in some ways, but yet perfectly, I think, keeping in with the human brain. The real answer is we don't necessarily know what Peter was thinking. But here are a few ideas. It might be that Peter sees this vision of heaven and thinks, this is it. This is the final age. This is what we've like been anticipating and thinking about. And so we're going to mark it. We're going to make these tabernacles. And this is going to be a festival where God is going to come and dwell with his creation forever. Peter understood. He knew that this was going to happen at some point. He was in glory. It could be that maybe Peter wanted to prolong this time with the giants of the faith altogether. I would, wouldn't you? What also makes sense is that Peter has no categories for what's happening right now in front of him in his brain. He has no idea what to do, and so he just kind of stumbles around. I have to do something, and so Lord, how about if I make three tabernacles for you? The gospel writer Mark states that Peter didn't know what to do because he was exceedingly afraid. How do we respond to God's revolution, rev- revolution? revelation? Not very many of us are going to have these kinds of visions. Some of us are. I know that some of you have had these kinds of visions, theophanies in your life. But God shows up to us he shows up with love and grace and presence and conviction and guidance and healing. There are moments, Chris said today, I felt the Lord's presence with me when I was sick. So how do you respond when God shows you who he is? With his offer, Peter's actually diminishing the complexity of the miracle that he's witnessing. Instead of his... A response being an affirmation or an echo of the reality that he's seen with his very eyes. He assumes what's happening and then takes it in a whole other direction where he thinks it should go. Because of his fear, he tries to codify the plans of God, making the story his own. If fear can get in the way of such a grand miracle as this for Peter, it can surely stop us. You see, when God really shows himself who he is to us, let's not turn and make it into something that he doesn't mean for it to be. When God shows us his very presence, let's accept it for what it is and ask him, Lord, is this that you are showing me it is a gift when god reveals himself to us but fear can paralyze us and debilitate us and make us go inward and make us respond in ways where we want to understand again and the lord wants to blow open our categories so may the lord be gracious to us as he reveals who he is The third call and response is meant to remind the disciples what is the most salient part of spending time with Jesus. In the middle of Peter's plan and idea, God interrupts him. There'll be no more talk of making dwellings for anyone. A cloud comes and overshadows them. This is not a darkening of the sky, but rather it is a bright, powerful presence which has come to rest over the mountain. Again, there's a link here back to Moses And Mount Sinai. And a voice comes out of the cloud to focus the disciples on what is truly happening. This is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. With him I am well pleased. Makes us think about Jesus' baptism. When the Lord broke through at an important time again. What strikes us most, though, is how God insists that the disciples Listen to Jesus. Through this, we again see that Jesus is sent from God. He is the one chosen now to speak for God. Peter was interrupted because he was talking when he should have been listening. He was making plans when the very God he served was showing him a new facet of his very being The word listen here is present imperative. Keep listening. Continue to hear what Jesus is saying. Their response here is completely in tune. They hit the ground (laughs) in utter fear. They know this is a holy, sacred moment. In Lent, we stop to contemplate the way of the cross. We stop to think about deeply why Jesus came And what his sacrifice means for us. We all want to get to Easter. We all want to get to the chocolate bunny. We all want to get to the celebration. But first there has to come the suffering. In these weeks. I encourage you. To feel the lament. And the weight of the sin. On our world. The weight of the sin. From our own hearts. That we would grieve. And acknowledge our own responses, our own indifference, as Pope Francis has said, to God's invitation to love and to reach out with humility. You see, we have to listen closely to the heart of Jesus and not rush to the end. The timing of the Transfiguration story is not a coincidence. Jesus shows his glory But how does one get to that place with him? By dying. By dying to self. By accepting his sacrifice. Jesus has to leave that glorious state. He returns again to his earthly being, but at a high cost. We don't get to know God in his fullness without his sacrifice on our behalf. And by accepting what that means for us. Romans 10, 7 says, Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the word of Christ. This Lent, let us listen deeply to Jesus. The last call here is from verses 7 and 8. Jesus tells them to get up and to not be afraid. When they look up, they see they are now alone again with Jesus. The heavenly visitation is over But there are comforting things here for us to notice. Jesus assures them with a touch. They are afraid. He understands when we are afraid. He understands when our anxiety is debilitating and we just close our eyes and hit the ground and we don't know when to look up. And Jesus comes and says, it's okay. I understand. I'm here he touches us and blesses us so that we might have his peace. One day, what Paul, uh, uh, what Peter and James and John saw will be normal for all who dwell with him. But until then, we need assurance of his presence when we are afraid of things that we cannot comprehend. When they lift their eyes, they are alone with Jesus. He has not left them. Even after the cloud leaves and the heavenly visitors leave, there is a sense of sadness in some ways that it's over, but they are once again with the Savior. They are safe. This is an ongoing promise in Matthew that Jesus never leaves us, that he always promises to come again to stay forever. Miraculous experiences are wonderful, but when they're over, we still get to be with the Lord. We have a new understanding of who he is. He has made our hearts his dwelling place. As they head back down the mountain, we wonder how much of this experience will stick with them in the next days and weeks. As they head to the, to the cross, we wonder, do they think about what he looked like in glory? How could you ever forget something like that? And yet we know that as he is arrested and taken away, that they will once again fail to remember, just like we do who Jesus is and what he came to do, that they again will be afraid over tumultuous events. What does the call and response with God look like in your life right now? How are you attuned to his voice, and are you in rhythm with his ways? Do you see in the telling of the transfiguration and your own experiences how much God values your participation in the grand narrative How much God gives us an experience of his very being so that it would change what we see in him. Sometimes we can get in a rut in all of our relationships, but also in our relationship with God, where we see him only in one dimension. And the Lord says, no, come and spend time with me so that you can get a bigger vision of my infinite being, There's so much more to God than we currently understand. And God wants us to come and change our perception of who he is. In the African tradition, the call and response shaped a whole people. And then that influenced generations of people everywhere with their ways of communicating ideas and emotions and traditions. And we too then shape our world with our call and response with the Lord. We go out and we tell our story and we tell what we've witnessed and we tell what we've experienced because we have his eternal presence daily. So in this Lenten season, my prayer for you is that for all of us that we would be following and listening and experiencing the mighty presence of God with us let us pray